0: From the New York City area, welcome to The Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby.
1: Yeah, baby. Come on now. Here we go. Well, you are live with me for an episode of The Badass Counseling Show podcast I am speaking to you wherever you may be. I, we have folks in-house right now fired up with their questions. We are on YouTube. We are on Facebook. We are on tiktok and we're on instagram down there and i'm taking your questions live we've got folks in from new zealand the uk montreal we've got someone in from Perm, minnesota we've got uh, texas hawaii aloha and all points everywhere and it's great to have you here i'm joined in studio by as always kc over in the booth though she's rolling her eyes at me i don't know why we'll talk about that later i'm sure i'll get my ass kicked for something and rob the rocket what say ye
0: well, you know, Sven, we do have dogs. We have a couple dogs, and we're also fostering a dog right now. Yeah, what have you got? And, well, we've got a, a Dachshund, a, a, no, sorry, a Chihuahua that we're fostering, and we have a multi-multi-mixed breed dog who's wonderful and a Golden who's crazy. But we took them all to the local beach yesterday, and when we mm-hmm. came back, they all needed a bath. So we, we threw them all in the shower. My wife does the, the cleaning of the dogs, and she accidentally used the dog shampoo on herself, and now she thinks she's a really good girl. <laughs>
1: That was a hell of a setup, and you na- you stuck the landing, Rob. Well done. You know,
0: call the papers. It doesn't usually happen. <laughs>
1: I'm proud of you, brother. Mm. Well, here we go. All right. <laughs> no, that was good. I enjoyed that. A little comic relief from the jolly joker himself. Very little. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, here's how we're starting off. We're starting off with, I'm in the healthiest relationship I've ever been in. Congratulations. That's great. Looking to get married. Any questions I need to ask? Okay, first of all, fascinating you say looking to get married. Uh, that implies when, and let's just play with the idea that it's a man. Forgive me for my playing the odds, but in all likelihood, recognize it's probably a man, so we're going to go with that. Uh, what you're saying is he hasn't proposed yet. I'm looking, though. I'm looking for him to propose sometime soon. Um, and so that implies that he has not yet, which is fine. And you're saying any questions I need to ask, which implies are there any questions either A, I need to ask him before, which is actually if he hasn't proposed yet, this is great. This is the time to be asking those questions or any questions I need to be asking myself. So you're really being deliberate and you're being advanced. You're doing it before the fact. And this is really smart people. So uh, take a cue here from Brit Brat Applejack. And I'm in the healthiest relationship I've ever been in, looking to get married. Any questions I need to ask? Yes. First question you need to ask yourself is, am I wanting to get, what percentage of me wanting to get married is driven by, this has always been my dream to get married? Nothing wrong with getting married, partly for that reason. Nothing wrong with that. But what percent? 10%, 60%? Okay. And subsequent to that question would then be, is my desire to get married, is this dream I have or this vision I have for my life, is this causing me to skew my vision of my partner? Are you overlooking things? Ask you. So that's another question. You should be writing this shit down right now, by the way, and putting this in your journal and go back and answer the questions later. Don't try to answer them now. Third question you should be asking yourself is, have I, and this is going to be a tough one because you don't want to fucking answer it because you say, healthy, oh, Carly the Studio Cat. For those of you following us on YouTube, Carly the Studio Cat was just wa- walking across the production board. <laughs> That's what you get when you're when you're up there on YouTube. You see the whole thing going on. Anyway, the third question you should be asking, you're not going to like this question, Brit Brat, and it's simply this. Are there things that I have sensed up till now in dating this person that have not quite felt good? And have I said so? In other words, are you honoring your needs, your boundaries. And a boundary is something that doesn't feel good. A boundary should be there. You don't get to do that to me, and it needs to be called out. And it doesn't mean it has to be some giant attack and some you know, giant fucking thing, but it needs to be called out and addressed, otherwise it will continue. Or are you worse ignoring red flags? Now we got a problem. If you're ignoring red flags, you're doing it in all likelihood because you're hoping it'll go away. Or you're thinking, gosh, this is the best I've ever had. I don't want to lose it because surely you can't get any better than that. So I'll just overlook the red flags. And let me tell you something. You want a shit show later, do that right now. If you're dating, do that. Ignore those red flags. The other question you need to be asking, you need to be writing these fucking questions down. You asked, I'm looking to get married. Uh, I'm in the healthiest relationship I've ever been in. What are the questions I need to ask? You need to be writing these questions down and go back to them in your journaling. The other question you need to ask is, am I feeling momentum? How much of my decision, desire to marry this person is because momentum. And momentum is either internal momentum or external momentum. People surround you saying, so when you get married, ah, huh, buddy, you know, she's great. She's a catch, or he's a catch. When are you going when are you guys gonna get hitched? All right. How much is you subjecting to just it's the next thing to do? Right? Versus, no, this is actually what I want. And him, this is actually what I want. And these are actually all questions. He can be asking himself or even you can be asking him because now you're having deep motherfucking conversations. All right? You also need to be looking for deviations from of pattern in yourself and in him. Now, it's easy to look at deviations from pattern in the other person. Have they deviated? Have they changed? And you would have noticed it. Something's off. Something's different. You're not as this as you used to be. You're more this than you ever were before. What is it? And if it's in the other person, bring it up. And don't shy away from a conversation because you fear losing this person because, gee, they're the best I've ever had. And I really, really, really want it, all right? Because that problem, you really wanting the relationship and look, overlooking problems, that becomes this gi- giant fucking tangled mess later, all right? Um, so these are all questions you need to be asking and asking of yourself, All right. And also, what role does my mother, what role does my father or whoever raised you, what role are they playing in my present relationship? How much of my actions in this present relationship are a response to their uh, external influence, How am I acting in this relationship as a result of my childhood? Now, this is a really deep shit you should be asking before any significant relationship is have you done the self-work on you or am I still just sort of a living reaction to what I was raised to be? Am I just sort of living on autopilot or have I purged all of the demons from my past? Have I actually gone in and all of the behavior patterns that I have today, what percentage of those are what I actually am and what percent are conditioned by where I came from? And I know you're thinking right now, oh, shit, I wish I hadn't asked that question of what questions I should be asking, because this is the stuff, especially if you're thinking about having kids. If you ain't asking these questions now, especially your work on yourself about your own childhood and healing you know, your demons, purging your demons and healing your past from your own childhood. Oh, shit. You think it's going to be easier to do that once you're in the relationship? No, but it's going to be necessary for you if you're going to have kids, if you're going to be a deliberate parent. So you sure as hell better be doing this now. This is so smart that you're doing this now. I really just think you're wonderful for doing this now. I mean that so sincerely. But now you got to dive in. And worst of all, you got to be willing to confront the, the fact that you may need to walk away or choose to walk away. It's like my brother told me, he owned a lot of real estate, bought his first apartment building when he was 24 out of college. And I had a good job, but he bought a six unit. Then he kept buying and buying and buying. And he had like thousands of units, whatever the hell it was. Did very well. Retired from corporate America at 35. And then fucking retired from his building, sold them all when he was like 55, whatever. Very successful. But I remember the first thing he ever told me when I was buying my first house and I was, I don't know, 25, whatever, roughly. And uh, my wife and I were, and uh, he said, Sven, you have to be willing to always walk away. Even if it's the day of the signing of the mortgage, uh, you know, and you're about to take it over. Even if it's signing day, you have to be willing to walk away. You can't fall so in love with something that, you, that it skews your vision of sort of reality and seeing the bigger picture. You can't be afraid to lose something or walk away from something. And it's never more true than it when, it, when it comes to marriage and parenting. All right, next question. What have you got, fine humans? That was a great one. I like that one. Okay, we're gonna tackle this one, but I'm only gonna give it a couple of minutes. So it really can't be tackled in a couple of minutes. I think we're all gonna agree, but I'm gonna do it anyway because it is significant. Okay, and I'm going to deal with it on an interpersonal level, not a socio-political level. All right, and it's simply this: any advice on how to deal with the amount of pain and suffering we're seeing in Gaza? All right, um, in our studio, among us staff, we have uh, we've been feeling. It, we talk about it a lot. Um, it's it's connected to who we are and, and so forth, and we care a lot. As I said, I'm not going to get into the socio-political thing. And the reason is because I know shit from Shinola when it comes to this. It's such a complex problem and I know nothing about it. I really don't. All right. However, what I do know is human pain. And that was your question, Dylan. You asked, any advice on how to deal with the amount of pain and suffering we're seeing in Gaza? The pain and suffering you are seeing in Gaza or anywhere else in the world you know whether it's the when the boko haram did that shit in africa and stealing those 300 girls or whether it's you know any tragedy anywhere outside our back door you know in our own cities all right how does the suffering of others impact ourselves this is one of the great theological questions of life spiritual questions of life soul questions of life human suffering the mere fact that you asked that question, Dylan, says that you are, uh, and I'm, I'm based on the spelling your name, I have no way of knowing if you're male or female, but or, or non-binary, uh, but it says you are a feeling person. It says you are a person who takes human suffering seriously. It says that you feel the pain of others. This is compassion. This is what it is to be human people, to feel the pain of others, and it hurts me to see others hurting even though I have no connection to them. It's not my cousin. It's not my brother. It's not the little boy who gets hit by a car out in front of my house. The closer things get to us, the more powerful it is. It's not my own son getting hit by a car down in, you know, he lives down South. No, it's someone I don't even know. Or maybe you do know some, or, you know, you are connected. You do have Palestinian roots, or you do have uh, Israeli roots, whatever it might be. But it's this connection to the suffering of others. This is why we suffer when when we see our own child at five years old have to go in for their first cancer surgery. That's why I suffered when my my son was in, uh, as a kid, similar to Montessori, and another boy had sort of thrown him and my son's head hit something and it cracked his head open. And we had to rush there and my son is crying. We had to rush him to the hospital. And it's my wife and me and I'm holding my daughter and I couldn't even watch them you know, stitch my son's head up. And by that time he'd stopped crying. So my daughter's watching the whole thing. She's like three and she's like two and she's watching. It's like, whoa, whose kid are you? But to see others suffering and the closer they are to us, the more it hurts us. We are connected even if we don't know the people. Yes, we generally suffer more when it's someone close to us. So where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is, All the worst stuff in life comes out. We do the worst things in life, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your parenting, whether it's how you treat your subordinates, whether it's how you treat your friends, whether it's how you are treated. We do the worst stuff in life when our own pain that we feel consumes us. And that pain that we feel can be The surrogate pain, feeling the pain of someone else can so consume me. And that's very often in life when we do the very worst stuff. Yet ironically in life, that's when we often do the very best stuff. When we feel that pain. And this is why, and I don't know if I've ever discussed it on the podcast. I know I've done a video tour on it and I know I've written about it, but this is why one of the fundamental questions of life is what do you do with your pain? If you're just stuffing it down, it's gonna spill out. We had a we filmed a couple of podcasts, and counseling episodes earlier. And I had someone on earlier today, Kaya, and she talks about a lifetime of pain and how she was treating the people around her very poorly, lashing out and shutting down. What she was doing with her pain was lashing back. And sometimes we have to do that in order to protect ourselves from a pain source, granted. But it's a question of what do you do with your pain? all of my work is about this people what are you doing with your pain do and I you know me flush it out I mean if you're not sick of hearing me say that by now you're gonna be all right flush it out purging it getting the pain out journaling and counseling and, and other methods getting it out why because when it's inside us it festers it's like when you know the human body goes into sepsis right in your colon And I know very little about the human body but right? You can't go potty and then it all backs up and then it gets fucking toxic inside of you. It's the same stuff with soul pain, with feeling the pain of others. So back to your question, Dylan, any advice on how to deal with the amount of pain and suffering we're seeing in Gaza? Get your pain out. In healthy ways, get your pain out. Allow the flushing, allow yourself to talk about it with others in your journaling. Get it out because if you don't, it will not only chew you up, but you'll begin to contribute to the pain in life by hurting others. And that's what this is. This is a, a cancer that is metastasized so great that it's people hurting people from centuries and centuries, millennia of pain. And we have to be committed. In my little corner of the world, in New York City area, I have to be committed to alleviating the world's pain in the ways that I can, as Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change you hope to see in the world. Do it where you are, but heal yourself and thereby, and as it comes in, as more stuff is getting dumped into your love cup, you have to be purging that pain so that you are a source of love and compassion with your pain, not a source of furthering the pain in the world. Rob, go ahead. I note that uh, Dylan did not mention the pain
0: anywhere else in the world, and we do feel a horror at the pain and suffering in Gaza, but we should also understand that Israelis don't feel safe in their own homes and have nowhere else to go. And so we should understand that it's pretty much
1: everywhere. Indeed, indeed. And that was my point in referencing Boko Haram and and tragedies going on everywhere. You know, where's the latest school being shot up in the United States, you know, and all this crap that goes on in our country, you know, and, and that it is everywhere. That's my point. It is outside our door. And to your point, Israelis in the United States are under, you know, uh, uh, Jewish folk in the United States are under attack, and so on and so forth. And and Palestinians, uh, they have their own, you know, um, uh, griefs around the world as well, wherever they may be scattered in their own sort of diaspora. All right, next question. And that was a good question, you get the hard one for all of us, but a good question. And uh, what am I doing with my pain in life? Right. And that can be childhood pain as well as pain I'm taking in because of world events, but it's especially that stuff from, and my relationship pain. Am I flushing it out? Am I getting better? Okay. Is it normal that I'm not over the physical abuse after two years? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now you don't indicate whether that is physical abuse from an adult relationship with a sort of a spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, something like that, or whether it's uh, physical abuse from your childhood. Um, no. I mean, that's quite normal. I mean, physical abuse, any sort of abuse is is profoundly impacting. It sends messages deep. And so for you to not be over it, yes. And please also understand that the, the rate, the velocity that you get over or get through, as it were, uh, recovery from abuse is dependent upon how deep you go into it. First of all, not just are you you know crying and, and so forth, but are you journaling out your feelings? Are you writing out or talking with your therapist and going deep? What was really going on inside of me? What were the real feelings I was feeling? Am I welcoming those feelings up now? Am I allowing myself to purge those feelings out? It's the deeper you go, the quicker the healing comes. All right. And very often, especially when it comes to abuse, we don't want to go into it. We don't want to feel those feelings. We don't want to remember the memories that have emotional charges attached to them. But that's precisely where the healing comes from. And the length of that healing, the the amount of time it's all with you and you're still feeling it, gets protracted, gets extended based on my unwillingness to go in and feel and allow myself to experience those emotional charges and release those emotional charges. So it's really up to you. Do you want to go into it? Um, All right. All right. Oh, gosh, I got to take this one. We've got another fiancé-type question, uh, except this one, they're actually affianced. Uh, it's not, I'm hoping you will get married, but this one is actual. My fiancé is cheating with escorts. He doesn't know I know. What do I do? Ah, well, I'm I'm taking it just because the occasional cheating question is always mildly entertaining and horribly tragic. Um, but you say cheating, ongoing verb, and with escorts, plural. So you didn't say it was a one-off. I found out he cheated with me once. No, this is an ongoing thing. And you add, and he doesn't know you know, which you are in the motherfucking catbird seat if he doesn't know. So I'm going to be tactical here. I don't like doing this, but I'm going to do it. You hold off basically as long as possible before you bring it up. You assemble a strategy for how you're going to bring it up. You gather as much motherfucking evidence as you possibly can screenshots, fucking copies of phone records, fucking even have them followed or hire a private investigator to take pictures. You get as you get hotel records as much evidence as you possibly can. Do you want to know why? Because the second you bring it up, it's gonna go into full-on denial and he's gonna shut if he's smart, which he can't be that smart if he's leaving all these loose ends. He's gonna shut down completely and you will not have the opportunity later to gather the evidence you're gonna need. Now, the mere fact that you have the evidence, i he's cheating, he doesn't know I know. The mere fact you're saying, what do I do, says that you haven't left yet. So him cheating, with, cheating ongoing with escorts plural, isn't reason enough for you to leave, is what you're saying. Now, think about that. I know he's cheating. It's ongoing. He's done it multiple times, and I still don't know what to do. And my question to you, if you and I were just kicking back, having beers, my question to you would be, how much evidence do you need? How bad does something have to get before you walk away? How badly does someone have to absolutely blow the shit out of our trust before you walk away? What does it say that you haven't walked away? And I'm not disparaging you at all. I'm trying to get down to what the hell is really going on inside of you. Do you so desperately need and want him that you're willing to not walk away yet? That it's happened multiple times that you didn't stop when you found out about the first one? Or maybe you found out about all of them at the end, that's possible. But why are you still asking yourself what to do? I'm willing to bet that there are some insecurities inside of you, fears inside of you, potentially of, gee, I'll never find someone like this again. Well, hopefully you don't find someone like this again who you know cheats on you like that. But you know what I mean, the good part, right? That when he's good, he's good. When he's cheating, he's, uh, well, not quite so good. But no, there are insecurities and fears and shit. You've been taught about yourself going on inside of you because anybody, if somebody cheats on you multiple times and you're still with them, it's about shit going on inside of you that is causing you to stay. And you need to dive into that shit. And I would recommend... Honestly, writing him a few letters that you don't send before you ever confront him. Start flushing out as much of your fucking rage and sense of betrayal and disappointment and anger and sadness. Now, do you want to know why? Because the more you purge yourself of all the strong emotion, the clearer you're going to be when you get into attack mode. And you're going to have to go into that because he's going to go into run mode. He's not going to fucking admit it, at least not at the beginning. That's why you need all the evidence. But also, in the end, I, I, just, I would ask you, why are you staying? For what possible reason? Because I can all but guarantee he's going to do it again and again and again, even after you catch him. Why? Because he's already done it again and again and again. He has a pattern of behavior that if you don't reject it, you are accepting it. Passively, and he's gonna fucking swear up and down. Oh, I've changed. Oh, I'm different. Or oh, it's not true. And but it's all just bullshit. He just doesn't want you to leave. You want to know why? It's not because he wants to keep you and give love to you. He doesn't want his love source, who's been pouring love into him. He doesn't want to lose his love source. So he's gonna change now after cheating on you, and not just once after cheating on you multiple times. This is the ugly part. He doesn't fucking care about you, regardless of what his mouth is saying. He does not care. He doesn't give a shit. He is fucking using you and he's using them. It's like, I want to get as many sources as possible pouring love into my love cup. And I'm willing to use you while simultaneously claiming to love you and that I'm innocent and I'm a sweet guy. This is a deceptive motherfucker. I wouldn't marry him, but- It's your life. You do what you want. The reason you're still in it, though, is you got shit going on inside of you, what you are conditioned to feel and believe about your worth. That's what's causing you to still stay in this fucking equation. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just trying to tell you that, you know, I've written a book, a two-volume book on infidelity, and I've counseled thousands, and I've cheated, I've been cheated on. You know, I've seen it from all aspects, personally, of the equation. I'm telling you, this is what's going on. You don't want to get into a relationship. You want to know why the last thing, um, before we jump to a break, it's simply this, that when I'm working with clients where they're having marriage problems, one of the things I ask them, um, or usually it's an individual because I don't take them together, at least not at start, never, ever, just a flying shit show of slinging mud at each other. I always take them separately. But as I'm drilling down with each person, particularly the person who feels you know hurt or whatever, is I'll ask them the question, when did the troubles start? When did it start to go bad? Or when did you not feel it? Or when do you feel that you didn't feel it from them? Or whatever it is. And they'll pick, oh, it was four years in, you know, really. And it was after his father died and blah, 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 blah. Or it was, you know, blah, blah, And I'll say, well, wait a minute. He changed his behaviors then. Was he not exhibiting any of those behaviors prior to then? And she'll say, well, yeah, I guess it was a few years prior to then. And then we're drilling down. And I'm like, so there were none. So all of these you know, behaviors started small when you got married. There was no evidence of that point. And when we drill down and drill down and drill down, you want to know what? We almost always find, or very often, let's say it that way, what we very often find is that the patterns existed before the wedding. Now, some people change right after the wedding, granted. But the patterns had started. They felt it or they saw it before the wedding. So you're in that position right now. You are affianced, which is such a fun word to say. You are fiancés. And you're seeing it already. If you don't shut this shit down, you are so supremely fucked later. All right, much more to come right after this short break. What are the aspects of yourself that you've still not made peace with? What is the single biggest core belief that is harming your life? Do you truly know the voice of your soul? These are just three of the hundreds of self-led questions that Sven has carefully curated for you to dive deep and pull up your most authentic self. Badass Wisdom on paperback is out November 20th. The audiobook is available now on badasscounseling.com.
0: This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back
1: to the badass. We are back and we are getting after it in a lightning round. And uh, if you have not read it yet, uh, my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, uh, is the one that is changing lives around the world. And uh, we're really proud of it. But more importantly, we're happy that people are healing as a result. You can get it on audiobook and ebook and paperback at badasscounseling.com. And my new book came out recently, Badass Wisdom, available on. Badasscounseling.com. Carly, the studio cat, just jumped off of Rob's lap. Rob clearly had more important things to do than producing this show because Carly comes first in this studio. (laughs) All right. What say ye, Rob? Uh, You did have a comment earlier
0: from a listener who said, popping in to say your content and book were a big factor in my healing journey. Thank you, brother. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. That was from
1: YouTube. All right. I've got a, uh, (laughs) I've got a couple of good questions here and this is clearly a parent talking. Uh, It's clearly, well, it would presumably assuming it's a heterosexual marriage. It is the mom talking and the mom is saying this about her daughter. My girl said, I wish you and dad had divorced when I was eight, not 16. So there you go. Okay, so the quote part of the daughter is, I wish you and dad had divorced when I was eight, not 16. And then Iskew finishes by saying, so there you go. Okay, this is a great one. This, and this is, a, this is a pet issue of mine. And that is parents who say, well, you know, we're gonna wait and divorce after the kids are gone. I am so horrifically against that idea. I am of the belief that if you know you're at the point in a relationship where you've tried and tried and tried, it cannot be uh, saved, solved, and you've both tried or one person has tried and the other person isn't interested in trying, whatever it is. If you reach the point where you already know this relationship sucks so bad, I want to get a divorce, please get it now when your kids are younger. And you're like, that's madness. That's madness. I'm like, no, you want to know why? Because if you wait until your kid, your kid is off to college or your last kid is finally out of the house, you're fundamentally then going to tell them. And I've I've had people get this news. I had a woman say to me once, my parents told me that they were getting a divorce four months before my wedding. Can you fucking imagine the audacity, the selfishness telling your daughter oh, by the way, we're getting a divorce. Now, have we uh, worked out the floral arrangements yet? It's like, and she said, it utterly destroyed my wedding. Not because mom and dad were combative at the wedding, because I was destroyed inside. You think waiting until your children are adults mitigates the pain, lessens it? Are you out of your mind? It makes it worse because you being together has been their reality longer. So the two people they love the most in the very world are now splitting up. Not only is that painful, it's so destabilizing. It's like you've rocked, it's like there's been an earthquake under the foundation of your very sense of identity. And you think doing that when your kid is 18 and off to college or 21 years old and, uh, you know, new recruit in the military and they're off at camp, blah, 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 or, or fort, blah, blah, blah. And you think telling them then? that you're getting a divorce is a great idea. Yeah, genius, that's a brilliant fucking idea. When he's surrounded by his knucklehead friends who have no, you know, they like them, maybe they love each other's brothers, but they don't have any fucking skills to help him or her, right? So rather than doing it now when the child is young and is surrounded by a family of love or surrounded by, you know, school mates and has patterns in place and teachers that care or whatever it might be when there are resources to normalize, to keep that child in their ritual, which can be its own sense of comfort and to bring counseling and to bring healing to this child. Somehow it's worse to do it now when they have the resources and they're surrounded by love now than to do it when they're 18 or 24 and they're, they should be spreading their, their wings at full wingspan. They should be beginning to fly And you're going to put this giant fucking boulder of this immense pain into that bag on their back. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. No, do it sooner. If you know, do it sooner. And you want to know why? And it's not even how they're going to react to it. Do it sooner. You want to know why? Because everything that you are teaching them by staying in a shitty relationship, I mean, let's admit it, it's shitty. Otherwise you wouldn't be getting a divorce. So that's a that's a foregone conclusion. You staying in a shitty relationship means that let's say you realize it in this person asked the question or made the statement. My girl came to me and said I wish you and dad had divorced when I was 8 not 16. Okay. What you're teaching that child. So let's say your uh, your your oldest child is 8. And you realize, you know, we've been struggling for years. There's uh, there's research out there that says most couples don't even go to therapy to begin therapy if they're having troubles in their marriage until they've been having it, those troubles for six years on average, six years. So let's just say you've been having problems since your oldest child was two. Now your oldest child is eight. You've got three kids, whatever, and uh, you're you're just both at the point where it's irreconcilable, or one person is checked out, or whatever it is. And you realize now at eight that means. From eight forward for that child, as well as leading up to eight, what you are normalizing for that child is that this is love. Your children are watching. They're watching how you interact. Even if you keep all your fights behind closed doors, which a lot of couples don't, they're not just listening to what you're saying and your arguments. They're watching how you interact. If you have a cold marriage, Or barbs that get delivered to each other, little sniping at each other. You don't think your kid is fucking seeing that? You're normalizing that this is what love is. And if you're not getting your love needs met from your spouse, where are you getting your love needs met? Oh, maybe you're using your children to get your needs for affection, attention, uh, confirmation of your worth. So now you're siphoning love from the very person you're supposed to be giving love to, right? So now you're teaching your child that they're responsible for your feelings. Not good people. Because it's a fucking child. That's not their fucking job. Or now there's the house is full of animus between all people, right? Or maybe your feelings are so overwhelming, your feelings of disappointment in your marriage, your feelings of no love coming in, or your feelings of anger at your spouse, that you're so consumed with your own feelings that you're not there emotionally for your child. So guess what the child learns? This is love. My own feelings as a child being neglected, not mattering, This is what love is. So I got bad news for you. What happens when little Susie, now 17 years old, now 28 years old, let's say 17 first or 14 first, and she has her first boyfriend who does what? Pour some love into her love cup. And she's like, oh my God, I'm getting attention. I haven't gotten attention at home and I'm not getting the affection. Oh my God, Billy is the best. I love Billy so much. And I don't mean to be crude when I say, and now Susie spreads her legs. Why? She's getting love. doesn't mean Billy's a bad person. He may be a lovely person, but she comes from such a destabilized state, such a state of low priority of believing she doesn't matter because she was conditioned to believe that by the love that you were teaching her. When you thought it was such a great fucking idea to wait until, you know, Susie's little brother Tommy is 18 and Susie's now 22, that's when we're gonna get divorced. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Now, are there extenuating circumstances? Yes. Are there rare case exceptions? Yes. But what I'm saying is, or guess what else happens? Now, everybody likes to talk about narcissists. Guess what happens when Susie is now 27 and she's met uh, Bobby? And Bobby's a lovely person. Uh, in the beginning. But she doesn't know how to stand up for herself when Bobby's kind of a jerk or doesn't apologize. Or it's just like, he's like, you always got to give the guy attention. He's just like, always has to be the center of attention. He's Mr. Know-it-all, right? She puts up with it because she's got someone who she has fun times with and she really likes him and so on and so forth. And she allows those small things that in a normal relationship would be red flags, you know, not apologizing and, and him taking advantage of her, not cheating on her yet, but, you know, Those sorts of things, but small things always become big things. And she's normalizing this, that being treated this way is okay because she she doesn't even think of it as a red flag because this is the way she's always treated. Her feelings didn't matter. You want to condition your child to get into a relationship with a narcissist? Do that. Teach them at a young age that their feelings don't matter because you're so consumed with your feelings. Teach your child that uh, love is cold and empty or brutal to each other. Teach them that. If you're in a relationship, this is why if you're in a relationship now with a quote-unquote narcissist, or what I call an extreme taker, or if you're in a relationship where someone's hurting you or where you're neglecting your own needs and not having your own boundaries, zoom, take that jet way back to your childhood and pay it a visit because it's back there. Rob, speak.
0: Interesting confirmation from a listener on uh, YouTube who says, yes, separate, don't stay together if it isn't working. I lived it. I left home when I was older because it was too much. And I know that I was the only reason
1: they stayed living together. Ooh, so uh, I left. Oh God. And that's its own. I'm so glad you read that, Rob. Isn't it fascinating that that person knew it as a child. At some point there was the cognition. They're staying together for me. They might have even told the child or the child might've overheard them. The pressure. So now, on top of the shitty love we're normalizing for the child, you're putting the pressure on the child that we're just doing this for you, kiddo. Almost like you better appreciate this or even you owe us. But at the very least, it's like, don't fucking do that shit for me. Don't do that for me. But the pressure that the child feels fundamentally that the child is keeping the family together or is responsible for keeping the family together. And it's just like... You don't want to dump that shit on a child. And if they realize it later, you don't tell me, you don't think they're going to be resentful of you later? Oh, yeah. All right, next question. What have we got, fine humans? Undoing jerk parenting. I like that. It's so hard. My mind goes crazy sometimes. Some days I'm doing things right. Some days I feel broken. I will always try to be the better person. Um, I like all of that. Undoing jerk parenting. Undoing jerk parenting—it's so hard. My mind goes crazy sometimes. Some days I'm doing things right. Some days I feel broken. I will always try to be the better person. Um, I must. Are you referring to your own jerk parenting? Like things you've done wrong in your own parenting or are you referring to the jerk parenting that was done to you? Or are you referring to your partner's jerk parenting of your kids and you're trying to undo the damage done to your partner? I'm going to take it as I don't know which one, but I want to address your very last comment because it's a slightly problematic. You say I'm, I'm undoing jerk parenting. It's so hard. And my mind goes crazy sometimes. Some days I'm doing things right. Some days I'm doing, I feel broken. I will always try to be the better person. Uh, If you're always trying to get better, that's one thing. But if you're always trying to be the better person, what can sometimes, what's sometimes implied in that, if I'm trying to be the better person, it's like if I'm in a conflict with someone and, well, I'm going to be the better person. I'm not going to get emotional or raise my voice, right? And that can be a good thing. But very often when we're assessing other people's treatment of us, And we say, or how, uh, or a conflict we may be having is if we say, I'm going to be the better person, we oftentimes what that translates into is I'm not going to allow myself to feel what I really feel. That's not good. Now, you don't necessarily have to direct those feelings at the other person, but you do need to feel. what you're feeling and you do need to allow yourself to be get you know to get those feelings out being the better person is so often translated into just stuff down your feelings and what you really feel or your needs don't matter whereas being the you know your best version of you means getting all that crud out all right next question all right. Good to have you guys back here on TikTok. Uh, I, got, I got a good one, I think. All right. From YouTube?
0: Uh, from YouTube, yeah. All right, go Hi, ahead. Sven. My five-year-old son was just diagnosed with autism. My eight-year-old daughter is struggling with jealousy of him. How do I help her to guide her through this? Right.
1: Um, and I'm going to presume... But I have to do it because all I have is that one sentence. I'm going to presume that the jealousy that the daughter is feeling is not because she wants autism too, but she's jealous of the attention her brother is getting. It's funny. I actually bring that up in my book. Uh, There's a hole in my love cup. I have a chapter on the golden child. And what I talk about in in the situation of a golden child is that, not just you know struggling with a sibling who's a golden child, but struggling with being a golden child, which is its own set of problems because you're not being authentic either. You're just being who they want you to be, but also um, the special needs child, being the sibling of a special needs child, and how that comes with its own set of challenges because when you love your sibling, you love your sibling, of course, uh, but you feel as uh, your person brings up in the question. Um, you feel guilty for feeling mad at them, feeling hurt that you're not getting the attention. I feel so selfish that I'm not getting more attention. And so your daughter being jealous of your son actually makes total sense. And the wonderful part about that comment your daughter is making is that your daughter is indicating to you without actually being able to say the words because she doesn't have the language. She hasn't been taught to talk this way. Or maybe you have, and God bless you if you have, Is she saying, I need more attention. He's getting all of this attention. He's getting special treatment. He's getting special treatment. I want special treatment. So, guess what you have to do? You have to change your parenting of your daughter. You're changing your parenting of your son. Change your parenting of your daughter. Now, you have to be extra deliberate about making special times for just your daughter. That's the price. That's the price. Otherwise, I guarantee, I guarantee as sure as the sun rises in the east and I have a proboscis on the end of my face, I guarantee her bitterness will grow and her sense of hurt and her sense of not mattering and her feelings not feeling heard, this is where it starts, right here, right here. You have a life decision to make. You are about to impact her adulthood, her, her life now as a child and her adulthood, positively or negatively, Do you hear what she is saying? Are you listening to your child? Or it's just like, oh, no, it's fine, honey. You'll be fine. Oh, we love you too. No, no, no. If your autistic son, which demands more attention, just does, and different types of attention, you change your parenting style when you have a disabled child or a child with a disease or a child with special needs, you have to change your parenting, which means, again, you have to change your parenting toward the non-disabled or the one without that. Why? So that they feel just as important. And is it hard? Fucking are you right. You're absolutely right it is. Yes, it's hard. Welcome to parenting. Or, you know, as they say, welcome to the NFL. It's just hard. And you have to. You have no choice. You have to. All right, next question. We're going to take just a couple of more, and then we're going to call it a day. All right. Uh, That was a good one, Rob. Um, Thanks for sharing that one from uh, YouTube. Certainly. Yes, Uh, Well, Chantel throws in. Chantel is back, but with a different comment, offering her two cents on the daughter, um, saying, asking open-ended questions to the children to help them to open up. Yeah, asking open-ended questions, such as um, just saying something like, so tell me about that. Tell me about what's going on inside of you, or how does that feel? Versus a yes, no question. Does that hurt? Yes. Okay, well, that's the end of that conversation. Just let them talk. Let them flush it out, and don't rush to fixing them. As Rob educated all of us in one show, he says, ask your kid in all situations, do you want to be heard, helped, or hugged? And if they want to be heard, then just shut the fuck up. Don't try to fix them, all right? They need to really feel heard. You know, occasionally you can offer suggestions, but no pressure to, and it shouldn't always be the suggestions. You have to become aware in your own self of how the anxiety rising up inside of you when your child is hurting, and you have to be able to purge your own anxiety in your own time so that your anxiety doesn't start to command the situation when you're allowing the child to feel their anxiety and fears. Because if your own anxieties go and start you know, to tumble around inside of you and it's like, it gets louder and my own feelings are getting so big. I don't like my seeing my child in pain. I don't like seeing my child hurting. I I can't handle it. You're going to take over and you're going to steamroll right over that child. Whereas if in your own time, you're able to flush out all of your own feelings, that means when your child is going through that hard time, you're able to be present, present, calm, and there for the child without the need to fix, but just allowing the child to flush out all their feelings and saying things like, wow, I can see how that really hurts and tell me some more and what's the hardest part and that makes total sense and it's going to be okay and what would you recommend? What would feel good for you for us to change this situation? Things like that. All right, Uh, next question. Uh, Jesse asks, heard, helped, and what was the other one? Heard, helped, or hugged? Do you want, sometimes in life, we just want to hug. We don't even want to talk. Sometimes we want to talk it out. Sometimes we want to, help me find a fix. Rock Work, works for kids and adults. And especially adults. I agree. And my girlfriend and I, we use that. Heard helped or hugged. And I'll tell her, I need to be heard. And she, she run a ran a big company and so forth. And she'll go, sometimes she'll go right into fix it mode anyway. And I'm like, honey, 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 honey. <laughs> heard and she be like oh i'm sorry <laughs> but i make the mistake too so i'm in no way disparaging her all right rob i, I got a good short question here that sometimes has occurred
0: to me lay it on me moo-cow. where is the line between healthy selfishness
1: and narcissism ah yeah yeah we actually addressed this in our show earlier with greg Between healthy selfishness and narcissism. And so I'm going to tell you what I told Greg when we were taping that episode. And uh, it's simply this. In my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, I actually show you an exercise. uh, And it comes with a drawing that I did myself, which is clearly the excellent work of a seven-year-old. Um and I just take a line, just draw a line, and at one end of that or array as it or segment as it were, at one end, uh, write the words extreme selfishness, and at the other end, write extreme selflessness. Okay, and um, so many people, as I was explaining on the other show, so many people are way over here on the extreme selfless, right? They do everything for everyone else. So it's all about, you know, these are the extreme givers. These are the people pleasers. They do everything for everyone else. And the problem, and then there are other people way at the other end. It's all about me. It's all about me. Me, me, me. Oh, look at me. I'm so pretty. That episode of Seinfeld um, with the coat, the fur coat and the landlord. Anyway, great episode. Um, But the people pleasers, the one is they're totally selfless. Anytime they do a little bit of thing that is for themselves, it's nowhere near even halfway between selfish and selfless. Just a little bit, an inch or two, people who are around them say, Oh my God, you're so selfish. Because they've been conditioned to always get from them, get, get, get. So now when that person takes, that selfless person takes for themselves, it's like, oh, What's wrong with you? You're so selfish. Oh my God. God, don't you embarrass yourself? You're so selfish. When they're never selfish, they're like always selfless. They need to be more selfish, so to speak. They're nowhere near even halfway. On the other end, the person that's always selfish, when, you know, they're just, it's always about them. So when they do one little thing or, or a few little things that are in the direction of being more selfless, they're like, I am Jesus the Christ. I look at how selfless I am. And it's a fucking joke it's like, no, you're a dick. You, know, you do one thing and now that just wipes away all your dickheadedness. No, God, you're annoying, right? So, but what's interesting is to be if you're very selfless to become what we would what some people would say is more selfish, you're not even halfway. When and 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 life is really about. It's not even about finding a center point. It's the fact that we're constantly toggling and moving and flowing between selfish and selfless. And maybe on the whole, by the end of life, on the balance, it right maybe is right around fifty percent. But the bottom line is there are days when I'm uber self-protective. I am so selfish. I don't let anyone in. I just need me time. I need my alone time. Or I don't want, you know, my girlfriend and I, it's every time it's like, well, what do you want to do tonight? Well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And there are times like last night I said, well, I want to go to, you know, XYZ restaurant. She's like, cool, let's go. Um, where I just know what I want. And there are times when she knows what she wants and and or in my work or whatever, that we're constantly flowing between selfless and selfish, ish And so the question was, what's the difference between being selfish and sort of becoming a narcissist or being a narcissist? A narcissist, or what I call an extreme taker, let's leave narcissist to the clinical setting, let them have that word, even though it truly belongs to the classicists, but hey, why split hairs? Um, Ovid, you know, anyway, his whole story, narcissists, echo, et cetera. Anyway, the point is this, people, the point is this, a narcissist isn't as much, on the whole, selfless as they are selfish. That's the difference. Help, being healthy in your quote unquote selfishness, which is, is such a pejorative term. If you're doing anything selfish, you're bad. No, no, it's that on the balance, I'm as selfish as I am selfless. And more, maybe even I tilt towards selfless. But as you get further and further from the center, the balance between total selfless and total selfish, as you get further and further from the center, if that becomes sort of a permanent resting spot out there towards selfish, if that's where you tend to spend most of your time, you're not constantly flowing uh, back and forth all the time, going extreme selflessness and you know some selfishness if you're not if there's no flow that's when you know you're a fucking narcissist or that's when you know you're with a narcissist that's when you know you're with an extreme taker that they're not giving they're not conceding arguments they're not looking at their own problems they're not apologizing when they've hurt you they're not owning their problems those are acts of giving it's giving to you my weaknesses it's giving to you allowing you to see my failures my fuck ups my insecurities my dreams that's an extreme taker But someone who goes through and is both, and there's this constant movement between, yeah, protecting me and doing what's right for me, but also giving to others and giving to you. That's someone who's in a healthy state. Feel like we nailed that one, Rob?
0: Yes, and the same listener says, so I guess it boils down to making sure you have enough in your cup to pour into
1: others. That's right. And I just put up a post uh, yesterday, day before about quick, if you want to do a very quick health assessment of your relationship, think of it in these terms, take a look at it. Honestly, in these terms, you have an emotional bank account between you and your lover, or let's say it's your relationship with your brother or whatever, whoever it is. Um, Are you making, except not children, because that's a different story. Is there an accumulation in the emotional bank account or is it constantly on empty? First of all, are you both making deposits? that over time roughly equal out. There's nothing wrong with taking withdrawals from an emotional bank account. That's what a relationship is. There are going to be times where I need you to be strong for me, or I just need, I'm hurting now. I need the floor. I need the attention. And there are times when I'm happy to give you the attention because you've made so many bank uh, deposits into the emotional bank account of us. But what happens is uh, when relationships become unhealthy is one, when one person is generally making withdrawals and the other person is generally making deposits. We got a problem, people. Or when both people are making withdrawals, it's like, well, hell, when it gets to that, I mean, let's just blow up the fucking bank. I mean, we're done, right? But if you are in a situation where you're making all the withdrawals and the other person is making all the deposits or vice versa, you got a problem. That is not a healthy relationship. Rob? Uh, before we close, people are asking about your new book, Ah, honestly, good. And I, I actually saw a few comments here. The new book is uh, t- the title is "Badass Wisdom," and it is a three hundred and sixty-five day daily uh, meditational slash inspirational slash punch in the face. And it Rob and I recorded it together. He did all the mastering, and I actually contributed the music as well. Uh, the music uh, that begins and ends each of the days is an old Scandinavian folk tune. That Rob, being the accomplished musician that he is. He uh, played and uh, scored it, but uh, did all the audio mastering. And so it's a daily, starts with a quote, uh, has a little anecdote or some deep thoughts, and then ends with questions. And the intent is to give you something to journal about every day, or at least chew on every single day to take you deep so that you're constantly going back to the state of depth and looking at the hardship of life and getting it out of you and, and ruminating on it because that's where healing comes from. Again, the title is Badass Wisdom. Uh, I think the subtitle is a, um, a daily motivational to take you deep and uh, kick your ass. Yeah, I had to swear. Wouldn't be me if I didn't swear. Although in Love Cup, and there's a hole in my Love Cup, I have no swearing in this book. Can you believe it? I had someone say, man, I bought your audiobook for Love Cup and I was really disappointed. You don't swear at me in that one. I just missed it.
0: <laughs> it was so long ago. <laughs>
1: Oh, I was worse then. Um, And I don't really swear. I think we bleeped out most of the swearing in badass wisdom, didn't we, Rob? There are a few beeps, yes. Yes, and I think there may be a shit or a hell somewhere, but nothing, all the fuckery is uh, bleeped out for you and your listening pleasure. Um, Yeah, so that's badass wisdom. It's available uh, presently on audiobook and uh, only at badasscounseling.com. No, I do not put it up on Audible because Audible does not do nice things to its authors and their royalties. Um, so it's only available at badasscounseling.com and you can uh, buy it and then the email gets sent to your email inbox or your spam folder, or whatever, and then you have full access to that book. It's 366 days worth. I even took care of those folks who care about Leap Year. Um, but yeah, really proud of that book. It'll be coming out as paperback and ebook just now in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, so I strongly recommend you get that, especially either A, you're just starting out and you want a day-to-day thing uh, instead of the deep dive of Love Cup or you want to go to Love Cup second, but it's also intended for people who have been doing some of the work or all the work of Love Cup and sort of want something new and and the next level. Um, that's badass wisdom. So, again, that's available at the website, badasscounseling.com. Thanks for asking, Rob.
0: And the book, now, when this podcast is uh, available, will be available also. Oh, for sure. This podcast won't come out till what? December 17th. Yeah. yeah. Happy December. Happy December.
1: Yes. So, fine humans, uh, for those of you, who, when this does come out in full swing of the holiday season, I hope you are enjoying your holidays. Uh, we've got a, uh, and for those of you in real time now, we've got uh On my website, if you subscribe to my website, I've got about a long article coming out on how to deal with uh, grief and family and pain during the holidays, The, the, the inner shit that is unique to holiday season, and how to survive the holidays, even thrive and enjoy the holidays when you're dealing with all that the holidays maybe bring up for you. My mother died right in the middle of the holiday season, and so that brings some things up in our home. On behalf of my fine team of KC, who looks like she's ready for a nap. She works harder than all of us, uh, except Rob. Uh, And on behalf of Rob, Rob, any thoughts, any closing thoughts on today? I think we covered it. Somehow we got through it. (laughs) Somehow I got through it. You always get through it. Well, you, you always fix the tech, so I... The tech shit, that doesn't worry me one bit. More or less, I do, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, so, with that being said, to everyone tuning in from Angola to Austria, Australia, Austin, Minnesota, home of the Hormel meatpacking plant, (laughs) I wish you all have a kick-ass day.
0: The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.